0: I ask you a simple question uh, this morning. How good are you at biting your tongue? You good at that? Maybe if you have a, a boss who, or maybe even a business client who is being just absolutely obnoxious and they have no idea how they're even coming across. Maybe it's what they're saying, but it's, it's not what they're saying. It's how they're saying it. They have no tact whatsoever. And do you have that filter in your brain that just says... Bite your tongue. Don't say anything. Don't ruin this moment. Just let it go. I think it gets harder when it maybe gets a little bit closer to you. Uh, Maybe there's the overbearing mother-in-law, or maybe it's the know-it-all son, brother, dad, who is just being absolutely obnoxious and annoying and intrusive with their behavior and... Do you you say something? Or do you say, is this really the hill that I want to die on, potentially sour, a relationship for a while? Do you say something? Do you bite your tongue? How good are you? Let me up the ante just a little bit more. What about when someone just blatantly offends you? What about when someone hurts you, and they wrong you, and they cause you pain? Are you someone who says, I'm non-confrontational, I really, really won't let that bother me? Maybe if it was a minor slight, you let it roll off your back, but what if it was something major? Do you confront? Do you say? Do you bite your tongue no longer? And more than that, what do you say? How good are you at biting your tongue? Now, the reason I ask that is because as we're finishing up this series that we've been in, Scandal, if you're just coming in for the first time, what this series has been about is going through all of these scandalous events that took place this week, the week around the Christian world known as Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, this week known as Holy Week, and we've been seeing all of these events that have just been outrageous, ridiculous, scandalous moments that Jesus has bitten his tongue throughout every single one of them. And I just want to recap over the next two minutes, if you will, just to see where we've been. Several weeks ago, at the beginning of this Holy Week, we saw Jesus' enemies, these supposedly godly men, behind closed doors plotting a murder, plotting to kill Jesus, an innocent man. And days later, we saw Jesus not just being handed over, but being betrayed by one of his closest friends for what? A pocket full of silver. And yet Jesus did not lash out at Judas, bit his tongue. And then shortly after that, we see Jesus going to a trial with the Sanhedrin, a group of about 72 religious leaders. These are supposed to be godly men. These are supposed to be people who care about justice, and yet they do anything but that. Condemn an, condemn an innocent man when they know he has done nothing wrong, when there's zero evidence, zero charges to bring against him. But not just do they do they make a sham of God's justice and their own laws, but then they blindfold him, they spit on him, they toss him around like a piñata, and yet Jesus does not cry foul. Nope. And then he gets led to the state, a spineless governor named Pontius Pilate, who has said on more than one occasion, there is no basis of a charge against this person. More than one time, this man is innocent, and yet he cares more about saving face with the people, cares more about his own reputation than justice. And so he sentences Jesus to death. And Jesus doesn't say anything. And then he goes to the brutes, the Roman guards, who enjoy inflicting pain, get their kicks out of flogging people, flogging a sinister twist on just a regular whip where they'd take maybe pieces of bone or metal shards and barbs, attach them to the end of the leather whips, and so that when, when they hit your back and they pulled it off, they would greatly increase the chance of ripping off ribbons of flesh. Uh, a, a tactic, a torture, so brutal that history shows us a lot of people didn't even make it to their execution. They died in that. And yet after he endures all that, Jesus... To the ogres who were beating him, not a word. Which brings us here, to the words we read a moment ago, the cross. A favorite, a favorite torture instrument, a favorite execution instrument by the Romans, because it served as two purposes. The first purpose is obvious, it killed the criminal in a slow, long, excruciating, painful way. But the second reason that they loved it is because it served as a warning. If you were crucified, you weren't done, this wasn't done in private behind closed doors or something. This was done in a public place where Jesus was on a hill just outside of the city gates. So anyone coming and going in Jerusalem, the Romans said, Come, come here. Come close and look. And sometimes I think when we picture the crucifixion, we get this idea that Jesus is like ascended on a cross, like 15, 20 feet towering above the people, where scholars would say, actually, that's probably not the case. What the Romans probably did is, I don't know, if I'm about two feet above where you guys are standing, he was probably three or five feet or so elevated above, enough where he's above, but you can still participate. The Romans wanted you to come. And they wanted you to say, no, 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 you can come close, you can touch, you can step in the blood and the gore, look into his eyes and see that could be you. This is what happens to people who cross us, who wrong us. So take a good hard look, see the cries, hear the screams, look at the agony, and know that that could be you if you mess with us. But for Jesus' enemies, they didn't see it as a warning. Instead, they used this as an opportunity to add more insult to already horrendous, horrible injury. And they stood And they spat on him. And they mocked him. You heard some of the things they said. (laughs) Look, everybody, this is your Messiah. He saved others. Well, let him save himself if he's so, so much of a Christ. And Jesus, enduring all of that, everything that we've seen so far, has not said really a word, of rebuke to his enemies. And now is about to speak. Bite his tongue no longer. Speak to them. And I can only imagine what you would expect him to say. Like if, if that was you, if that was anyone, you, you would expect someone who's enduring all that to open their mouth and say, Father, Kill them. Kill them like they are killing me. Pour out your justice on them. Let them have a taste of the agony that I am going through. Destroy them. Damn their souls to hell right now. Do it, God. That's what you would expect. And if Jesus said those things, there's not a single hand in the room that would go up and say, "Uh, Jesus, I think that was a little harsh. No, everyone would say, absolutely, he has the right to do that. This has been unjustified. He's been innocent from day one. He's never committed a crime. And yet, what Jesus says is even more outrageous, even more ridiculous, nay, scandalous than that. Because what he says is simply this father Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And those words are as unexpected as they are beautiful. And we're going to spend our whole time in just these words. And and to be quite honest, we could spend a lifetime in these words. Because these words show us the beating heart of the gospel. These words show us so much. And what we're going to really focus on today is that these words... They primarily show us uh, a couple of things. One, they show us really something about sin that I think we often tend to overlook, that is, who it is exactly that we offend when we sin. Another thing that we're going to see is just exactly what is required for forgiveness to take place, a sacrifice on behalf of the offended person, and we're going to see just how it is that we can carry this out in our lives. So the first thing. First thing this shows us is something about the nature of sin. When Jesus speaks here, when he speaks these words, he's, he's really showing us, them, who it is that we are offending, which is something I think we tend to overlook. When we think about sin... When we think about hurting someone else or the wrongs that we've done to someone else, we think about it in just those terms. Someone else, another human being, a purely horizontal relationship. And yet you notice Jesus' words here. He didn't say, I forgive you for what you're doing, even though he did. No, he says, Father, forgive them. In other words, what he's saying is it's not... Purely a horizontal relationship that's being hurt here, that's being affected, but primarily it's a vertical relationship between you and God. That it's not just another human being that you're offending, but rather it's when you step out of God's design for your life, when you step away from God's will, it's God that you're hurting. It makes me think of words from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by a man named David, King David, and if you know his story, you probably know the greatest scandal in his life, the adultery with Bathsheba, the cover-up of the murder of her husband Uriah, and all the pain, all the grief, all the horror that he caused. There was a consequences dealing with a child that was conceived, there was a consequences dealing with his own children later on, there were consequences with his kingdom, David wrecked and ruined so many people's lives. And after this moment, he writes Psalm 51. And what he says is profound. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. In other words, I will never forget it. It will always be there. I will never forget what I've done. I will always be reminded of it. And then he says this, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so many people, when they read that, they think, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about all the other people that you hurt, David? Are you just dismissing that? And no, he's not dismissing it. What he's trying to show is that my offense is not just against them, but the heart that I really broke was God's heart. The person who I'm really accountable to is not another human being, but is a divine person. Holy God. And I think sometimes we grasp this intellectually. I think there's some of you who would say, I'm not learning anything new here. I know that when I sin, I hurt God. But I think we grasp it intellectually. I don't think we grasp it emotionally and spiritually. Because simply put, I think when we visualize our hurt, we visualize it in terms of, who was offended, and our our angst, our emotions ramp up the closer that person is in proximity relationally to us. So for instance, if we've hurt a total stranger, maybe you think I didn't even like them. I don't know them. Not a big deal. But the closer that person is to you, then it ramps up the emotions and says, I'm devastated. What have I done? I can't believe it. And yet David writes this beautiful psalm with tons of emotion, and who's he hurting? Who's he visualizing? God. Like It's like he sees Bathsheba, he sees Uriah, he sees maybe his commanders, he sees his people. They all have a grievance against him. And yet, maybe even towering behind them, or maybe even standing in front of all of those people, he sees God. And when you grasp this, it is absolutely terrifying if you are the perpetrator, if you are the one who's offended someone. Because if you've offended someone, it's not just that person. It's God. It's not just their face, but it's God's face. It's not just their heart that you've broken, but imagine if you visualize God's heart, you know, the God that you pray to, the God that you love, the God that you're worshiping, or more than that, the God who loves you unconditionally, who sent his son to die for you, to have you, the God who did everything for you, and you took his heart and, and you crushed it. you think that would change things if we visualized sin that way? Not this, but that. It's terrifying if you're the perpetrator. But if you're the offended, this truth is absolutely comforting. Because what this truth shows you is that sometimes nobody else knows. Sometimes nobody else knows the pain, nobody else knows the suffering, nobody else knows the depth of grief that you have had to go through, but God is standing beside you and says, I know. I know. Because they hurt me. They didn't just hurt you. They offended me. They didn't just cause you pain. They caused me pain. They didn't just inflict grief on you. It broke my heart. And not only does he know, but he says, I'm not going to let this slip by. I'm not going to let this slide out of my memory. No, he says, I've got a system in place over the universe that everyone's sin, one way or another, will be held accountable. Now, the second thing that these words show us is that if all of that is true, then it shows us the sacrifice that is needed for sin and how the sacrifice is not maybe on who you'd expect, but it's totally on the offended person. Now, follow me here. We've seen that we have sinned against God. And if we have sinned against God, what we've done is we've rebelled our sin. It creates a debt against him, right? And for us to be good with God, that debt, it has to be made even, right? If someone owes you 100 bucks, then they need to pay you a hundred bucks back in order for you to be even, right? We understand how that works. But the problem is, is that all of our sins, all of our offenses, we can never pay back to God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. He's a righteous God who expects perfection from us, and there's no way we could ever do anything to make up that gap, to make up that debt. And that's a problem, because God is loving, but he's also just. And that means he has to punish all of that rebellion. He has to punish all of that sin. He cannot just simply let it slide. He can't just look over it because that would be an injustice against a God who is perfectly just. It would be a mockery of who he is, but also it would not be loving at all. Sometimes people say, well, you know, that sounds very harsh for God to to be judging that way. And I said, actually, I think it's really loving because if God were just to say, you know what? We're going to let that sin slide What does that do to the people who've been hurt? If it's you who've been offended by someone else and God says, I'm not going to hold them accountable to that, I'll bet you'd say that's a God who is anything but loving. God has to do this. It's part of his nature. It's who he is, loving and just. He has to punish that sin. And if we can't make up that payment, that means our only hope is that that payment has to be made up by someone else. Enter in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Who right here, railroad spikes pounded through his limbs, bleeding, dying, has every right to be angry, to condemn those people in front of him who are killing him. And yet he says, Father, this was the plan all along. Forgive them. And what he's essentially saying is, Father, do not punish them for their debts. Punish me. They're killing me. Don't pour out your justice on them. But pour out your justice on me. And kill me. Sacrifice me. The sacrifice that makes forgiveness possible. I want you to understand, in other words, what Jesus is saying, that every, he had every right to condemn to be angry, to smite them and you. And instead, to the people who were most directly in charge of killing Christ, he says, forgive them. Do not hold this against them. And really, he's saying to the people, I'm giving up that right. You don't owe me anything. That scandals, because what that is starting to show us is that in order for us to do forgiveness, it is it is so countercultural to the way the world works. See, when someone wrongs you, what's the first thing that comes to mind in your relationship with them? They got to make it up. They hurt me, they wronged me, they owe me. How many times have we said or thought those words? You owe me, right? And so what do they do? Well, they can do you a boatload of favors. They can maybe write you a check. They can try to <laughs> do anything that you want. But let me ask you a question. Can they ever really fully make up and erase what was done to you? And the answer is No. We have this horrible cliche in our world today, right? Oh, forgive and forget. I hate it. I hate it because people who say forgive and forget, they've really never had to forgive, have they? Because if they did, they'd know you don't forget. The deeper the hurt means the greater the offense, means the longer lasting the memory that sticks with you. And the world would say, the offender is on the hook. The offender, the one who hurts you, they're the ones who need to pay. But Jesus flips that worldly thinking on its head like he does again and again and again in his word and says, no, 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 you've got it backwards. For forgiveness to take place, it's not the offender who has to sacrifice something. It's you, the offended. You have to give something up. What? Your right to be right. See, when you've been sinned against, when you've been offended, when you've been wronged, everybody, their grandmother and their cousin and their second cousin, everybody would tell you, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to a thousand apologies. You have a right to condemn them and every thought in your mind to hold on to the bitterness. You have a right to have them owe you. You have that right. But Jesus says, you know what forgiveness does? Is the offended gives up their rights and says to the offender, you don't owe me anything you hurt me you wronged me but I'm not going to demand something from you that you could never give me an eraser you owe me nothing and every time I have preached on forgiveness Maybe maybe almost every time, maybe except one. I've had a conversation with someone afterwards who comes up to me and is offended. Because this isn't something that is just easier said than done. But this is something that sounds offensive. It sounds so unloving. You mean I have to give up my right? It sounds downright impossible for some people because some people, and depending on the level of hurt, the level of anguish that you've had to go through, You can't give that up. Because what do you do? You cling to this victim card. And being the victim and building your identity on as the victim, it gives you certain rights you feel. And more than that, it gives you this crazy sense of comfort being the victim. Everyone sees, oh, you're the one who was wrong. Oh, you're the one who was hurt. You're the one whose heart was broken. And, and there's some sympathy there in, in being identified as that person. There's some comfort there. But here's the thing. To borrow an illustration from another pastor, what this is, this is the child who can't get rid of the blanket syndrome. And someone after the first service told me, that's our kid right here. <laughs> you ever had that? Uh, as a kid, who has this attachment to a blanket? And this kid has to have this blanket when they go to bed, has to cling onto this blanket when they wake up, has to take this blanket to breakfast and lunch and supper. They go in the car, they have to take this blanket with them. And over time, as that kid ages, that blanket so does too, but it clings to them. And that blanket, you know what happens? It gets old and it gets nasty, and it gets stained, and it just gets a little ugly, but yet they cannot separate their attachment from them, and it gets a little weird, but it provides them this crazy comfort. And clinging to that victim card does just that. It's old, it's nasty, it starts to get weird, but it provides you that comfort. And now, pastor, you're saying, I have to give that up? Pastor, What other comfort will I have? That's the thing that is comforting me. And my response would be, how are you ever going to have peace in your life, peace in that relationship, if you don't? And more than that, how are you ever going to see yourself as anything more than a victim unless you say to that person, to their face or in your mind, you don't owe me anything. Sometimes we got a fake forgiveness. We play the yeah, but game. You ever done this before? Yeah, but yeah, I'll forgive them, but... Here it is. But they need to apologize first. Yeah, I'll forgive them, but... I want them to show a little remorse. Yeah, I'll forgive them... But I want them to chase. I want them to sweat it out. I want them to know what they have done is wrong. And then I'll forgive. And whatever that is, I'll tell you right now, it's not forgiveness. Because look at the timing of these words that Jesus says. His enemies are breathing on him. In spitting distance. Almost to his face, mocking him. Has anyone shown any sign of remorse? Any sign of regret? Has anyone thrown out an apology? (laughs) Sorry, Jesus. Has anyone learned their lesson here? Most of them would never learn their lesson. And yet, what does Jesus say? Does he say, okay, Father, forgive them as long as you promise never to do this again? No. No, he just says, forgive them because forgiveness is something given to the person long before they even maybe recognize their need for it. So with all that being said, who owes you? Because I almost would say I can guarantee you've been thinking of someone or some people who have hurt you and wronged you. And can you imagine yourself saying to them, you don't owe me. And if you can't, why not? Is it the thought of thinking, well, that just seems way too simple, way too easy. They hurt me, and I'm setting myself up for more hurt. They're just going to be like, I'm I'm laying myself down as a doormat. They walked all over me, and I'm letting them off the hook, and they're going to walk all over me again. And to that, I would say, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you won't ever get hurt again. You probably will get hurt again. But that also doesn't mean that you can't set up relational boundaries with people to avoid that unnecessary hurt. Or is maybe your thinking that's getting in the way of your forgiveness, well, they don't even recognize what they've done. They don't even know the hurt they've caused. What if they never learned their lesson from this? I can't just let them off the hook. And my response would be maybe they never will learn their lesson, but is that your job? To be their judge? No. That's his job. Your job is to forgive as freely as it's been given to you. And if you and I struggle with that forgiveness, and I know many of us do, maybe before you even think of that person who's offended you, who's wronged you, maybe before you even think of the hurt, what was done to you, maybe what you ought to do is think first and foremost of what you have done to your God. The innumerable sins and offenses you've caused him. The countless heartaches that you've given to him. And we already saw there's no way you could do anything to pay that back. So how could God overlook it? With one giant sacrifice, the offended God sacrifices what? Everything. His son, whom you offended, who has every right to be angry at you because your sin is the reason he's on the cross. And yet instead, he cries out a plea to his father and says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They don't always understand how their sin grieves you and breaks your heart, God. They don't always get the lesson. And they will hurt me again, they'll hurt you again, and they'll keep hurting you again. But Father, they don't deserve it. But isn't this why we call it grace? Forgive them. And in this moment, on the cross, where Jesus died. God completely changed your status. In theological, churchy terms, we go from saying uh, guilty to justify, that is not guilty. Maybe in terms of the sermon today, I'll say you go from a victim of everybody else's offenses and he changes your identity and says now you are a victim with jesus by jesus in jesus and only because of jesus you are a victor over sin over death over the devil and it was not easy and it cost god everything but that is why it is the most beautiful and most powerful gift that has ever been given to you given to humanity and it's something that you are to give to other people see this is the, the beating heart of the gospel yes But this is not just something to be looked at and seen and marveled at and say, wow, isn't that so beautiful? This isn't just the thing that makes Christianity tick. This is the thing that makes Christians tick. This is the thing that gives us the fuel to go. Forgiveness right here. Christianity would be nothing without it. And this is what you pray. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as what? As we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiven people, forgive people. And one final thought, if there's still a part of you that says it's hard, there's this, this stubbornness in your heart that says, I can't do it, I won't do that, I can't force you to. No one can, like, like yell forgiveness into your life. Do it! Forgive! No one... No one can do that. But here's what I will say. Do you want to be a victim or do you want to be a victor? Do you want to cling to this card that gives you such an unsatisfactory comfort of always letting everybody know and keep the world reminded of how you were wronged and hurt? Or do you want to build your identity on the freedom that comes from the forgiveness that is won for you. Do you want to build your identity and be freed from, from that other offense and that other person controlling you and now you are freed because more than being hurt against someone else, you are at peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Which one do you want to build your life on? And whatever answer you say, I'll tell you what the truth is. The truth is you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You hurt God. You wronged him. But because of Jesus, he says and looks at you today and says, you don't owe me anything anymore. Now, who has hurt you? And more than that, who's hurt God through you? Go tell them the same thing that Jesus has told you. Amen.